All right, welcome back to the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos. Today we have a very special episode. I'll be interviewing Reed Ianson, who is based out of Houston, Texas. He is a senior economist at Kepler, where he is focused on commodities. Before that, he spent time on the risk desk at Enterprise Products based out of Houston. He earned a bachelor's degree in finance as well as economics at the University of Houston. Reed also earned a master's in arts and applied economics also at the University of Houston. Reed is a good friend of mine and a real expert in the energy field. I'm very excited about recording this episode, and I believe that the listeners will thoroughly enjoy it. So with no further ado, Reed Ianson, happy to have you. Thanks, Jackson. It's great to be here, man. Awesome. Well, really, thank you for taking the time um, to hop on here today. I just wanted to ask you kind of what are some things that you've been working on? It's been a real interesting week, so if you could just go into a little bit about that. Yeah, no doubt this last week has been, uh, I would say, unprecedented for the state of Texas. And so a lot of my time has been spent on natural uh, gas demand in the state, um, its implications on on LNG exports, um, and also just availability of of oil production and what that might mean uh, over the next couple of weeks as well. Awesome. Awesome. Super interesting stuff. Um, Regis has a really dynamic job, so it's always interesting to kind of hear what he um, is working on. So I think in the back of everybody's minds um, this past week, I think uh, our energy system didn't work <laughs> how, it was, uh, how it was supposed to. So if you could just kind of explain um, the reason why we had those rolling blackouts and the power failures and kind of maybe what you could see changing going forward. Yeah. So the Texas power grid um, has a lot of issues, um, but fundamentally it comes down to um, the fact that the Texas power market is deregulated. What this means is that for the majority of people in the state, you go and you purchase um, through a retailer, um, you you go and purchase electricity. Um, in a normal, uh, traditionally regulated market, your distributor and your electricity generator are one and the same. They're a monopoly and they're regulated by the state. In Texas, these entities are separated. So the generator um, is the player that you're going and purchasing electricity from, right? And and like here in Houston, for example, where I live, there are a whole bunch of generators or a whole bunch of middlemen who might be purchasing energy power from the uh, generators and selling it to the end customer. Uh, And then the second part of that market, obviously, is the distributor. That remains a monopoly, right? You you only want one set of power lines in a given uh, city, right? You wouldn't want, um, you know, four sets of power lines running through a given area, right? So you have um, the generator and distributor, right? That uh, these two segments have been separated in Texas, right? And so you're going and you're purchasing from uh, the generator, the issue with this is, is that it tends to disincentivize investment. So um, generators uh, bid into a um, day ahead market and a real time market to meet demand. And when they do this, um, obviously that's like that's how they're making money. But when a um, when a firm comes in and decides, okay, we want to build another natural gas plant or we want to build another um, nuclear plant, um, obviously huge upfront cost, right? A lot of risk 
Um, if that plant fails, it's on the onus of the generator, right? In a traditionally regulated market, um, that regulated monopoly is going to have to come into the market, <clears throat> um, pitch their idea to the state. The states are going to determine what a fair return is. And then if um, the state determines that the, the project's a good one, then they can move forward. If that project ultimately fails, that cost ultimately falls to the end consumer. That's not true in Texas, right? Because we live in a deregulated um, market, right? So a generator, um, if they if they fail, they fail, right? And and the end consumer is not bearing the risk, right? <clears throat> and so that's, that's a kind of a big difference between a regulated and a deregulated market, right? And so a lot of um, generators are unwilling to come into the market and invest in new capacity, right? Because of that risk that they have to take on. Second, every time that you add more capacity, when you're bidding into that market, those bids tend to go down, right? Because you're adding more supply, right? And also ERCOT, which is the electricity regulator in Texas, limits um, how high prices can go in times of peak demand, right? So if I'm a generator, one, um, in, in a state like Texas, one, I'm absorbing the risk of building a new plant. If that plant fails, I fail as a company, right? Two, um, I'm inherently adding more supply to the system, which means that when I bid into a day ahead or real time market, which is, which is controlled by the electricity authority or caught, um, I'm, that means I'm going to be making less money. And three, um, uh, I'm taking on the risk of um, the possibility that um, that I uh, that that capacity will uh, um, and I've lost my train of thought. Sorry, no worries. Um, no worries. This is like super hard to talk about in like five minutes. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, that was that was a good. I think it was. But, a good but yeah, just but again, so you're you're facing the uh, the risk. Of, of new investment. You face the risk uh, that obviously when you build more supply, capacity drives down bids. And obviously your third reason is even in times of peak demand, the the price that you can um, uh, bid into the system is capped by ERCOT, right? So those three factors really disincentivize investment. And over a long period of time, this has tended to cause problems in Texas because you've had large uh, gen power generators um, who have been unwilling to invest in new capacity. Now, of course, this is separated separated a bit from renewables, specifically wind, which has doubled in terms of percentage of the grid in Texas over the last 10 years from about 10% in 2011 to about 20% currently. Wind power uh, has a very high upfront cost and a very low marginal cost, right? So, um, the thing is that it's very hard for a natural gas plant to compete um, against a renewable um, when it's operating, right? Because a natural gas plant is going to be more expensive to run given the feedstock, given the cost of the plant versus a renewables um, project. The difference is a renewables project costs a lot of money up front. The government provides a lot of subsidization. And so also Texas is kind of struggling a little bit right now with the fact that we have built out a lot of renewables because of heavy amounts of subsidization, which is not a bad thing, 
but I cannot turn um, renewables on and off, right? And so uh, this week, obviously, we needed more power for our grid, and you can't like turn on more wind. Obviously, we did have some freezing issues as well, and, and the lack of winterization was true across the entire grid. But just specifically when it comes to renewables, it's important to keep in mind that it, it, is, it can't meet marginal changes in demand very easily because you can't turn on and off the weather, right? And so again, to kind of summarize all of this, um, you've kind of had a lack of investment for like traditional fossil fuel-based sources of power. And then also renewables build out has been um, quite intense over the past decade. Not a bad thing, but a lot of that has displaced dollars that have co- could have gone towards fossil fuel power generation, namely uh, natural gas. Again, I think we're going to have to find a balance because renewables are a good thing as we move forward and continue to deal with the effects of climate change. But um, also taking into the account that we, we need to make sure that we can meet marginal demand. Uh, one last point, and this is, uh, I'll direct you to my website if you want to read more about this, um, shameless plug. But uh, in Texas, we don't run a capacity market. In other words, we don't, uh, in a traditionally regulated market, the central uh, regulatory authority will pay power producers to be available. Okay, they, and, and many times, those power producers don't ever have to come online. Um, uh, but um, in Texas, we don't have a capacity market. So we don't, um, and actually this, this actually wouldn't happen in a deregulated uh, market. This, this is kind of specific to a deregulated market where you do have a lot of generators, right? But again, um, Texas doesn't pay uh, for folks to, to basically uh, be in reserve, right? Um, for the possibility that they might have to come on. And that's known as a capacity market. Questions, concerns? <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely great, great explanation. I'll definitely put uh, your link in the show notes for listeners. I think this kind of what, you know, transpired over the past week really brought into central focus our energy mix and how much it's kind of been changing. And I think there might've been some confusion like, oh, because of the cold, you know, renewables did not perform well. And that's why they can't be trusted. I don't think that's the case. And I think it, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on the energy mix changing over the next, say, five to 10 years, because you mentioned kind of the energy mix over the past 10. So if you could just maybe touch on that a little bit. Yeah, I think um, investments in renewables will remain really strong. It's over the next decade, there will be about 16 billion in subsidization made available for wind power. So that trend is going to continue, make no mistake about it, unless we see some major um, legislation changes, which I think are unlikely. Um, I think more likely is we could maybe see changes around um, uh, providing uh, a way to create a capacity market, right? To give um, maybe plants that are offline for certain periods of time for them to stay online so that they're available to come into the grid if needed, right? I think that, I think also, uh, we're going to have to think about um, maybe coming under uh, a federal regulatory regime known as FERC. Um, right now, ERCOT is its own independent um, uh, 
ISO. It's not, it does not come under the regulations of the federal government, but this means that we can't basically siphon power from the Eastern or Western interconnects of the United States. Um, so for example, this past week, uh, ERCOT could not say, Hey, can we borrow power from places outside of Texas? Right. So I think that's another area we're going to kind of have to think about, um, to maybe improve the stability of the, the Texas grid. And of course, just finding ways to, to make sure that alongside that build out in wind power, we have those, um, especially natural gas turbine units being built out so that we can meet marginal demand um, at, you know, especially in weeks like we had last week. Yeah, no, that was, that was very interesting. I think I've seen tons of different figures on what, I guess the investment in renewables is supposed to be. Um, Do you, do you, could you foresee a future where we start to see an underinvestment in more traditional oil and gas here in the United States? Do you think like that's a possibility considering just the, a big focus on renewables and green energy? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, I think right now we kind of go back to, to what I mentioned earlier. You have this problem and, and I'll kind of specify this a little bit better. So, you know, if I'm going into the market and I want to build a a large wind farm, the upfront cost is tremendously high. It's very expensive, right? But my marginal cost to run that day to day is virtually nothing. It's zero, right? Because the wind doesn't cost me anything. Versus if I build a natural gas turbine unit, my upfront cost is eh, moderately, moderately expensive far cheaper usually than a renewables project, but then my cost to run it is going to be, uh, mar- uh, on a marginal basis is going to be higher than, uh, with, with say wind energy. Um, and so as we continue to push more money into renewables, especially as it's subsidized, there is less incentive to invest in these traditional fossil fuel, um, power generators. And so I think as we walk forward, we're just going to need to be aware of that issue and make sure that um, we strike a balance because I'm fully in support of building out renewables. It makes sense. It's much better for the environment. It's it's becoming increasingly economic um, once you've built these plants. But we're going to have to just be careful that we're making sure that um, we, we are still able to meet marginal demand requirements in times of, of, of big spikes in demand. Do I think that, uh, we could see an underinvestment? Yeah, for sure. Just because right now the government, the federal government, a lot of state government governments are very focused on subsidizing renewables. But I think Again, this stuff can be mitigated through somewhat by making sure that you have a capacity market. Um, maybe regulating a little more in unregulated markets, maybe regulating a bit more to say, hey, if you're coming in and building a natural gas unit, we'll create a function where we can guarantee you a fair return, but you're going to have to f- always charge X price, right? Something like that to maybe find a balance to give some people incentives to come in and and invest in non-renewables. Yeah. Yeah. I 
couldn't have said it better <laughs> myself there. I, uh, as so I, our target audience for the show is college students like myself that are interested in going into the energy industry. And I, my, my big focus on starting the show was to one, just explore curiosity about the space, but really to shed more of a positive light on the space. So as we saw the energy industry get pretty crushed over 2020, and do you, where do you see the energy kind of energy industry sitting in the U S over the next five or so years, as far as like me wanting to enter into this space, do you think like there's going to be a lot of new excitement around green energy in Houston and that sort of thing? Or do you think like that sort of tech will move more towards, I don't know, Silicon Valley or something like that? I think, uh, in the next five years, again, renewables going to remain, a huge industry. It's growing a lot. If you want to move into a riskier industry with a lot of growth and a lot of smaller companies, that's the place you want to move. Um, right now, it's looking like that segment is really centering itself in Austin more than Houston. We'll see if that continues. Um, but I, given renewables is very much integrated with tech in a lot of ways, I think that could be a trend that continues. I think also traditional uh, pure play natural gas um, and and the associated supply chain, whether it's pipelines or, or downstream um, refinement or exportation, going to remain a huge market for for the United States. Um, the need for for natural gas um, beyond the United States in the form of LNG is going to remain, especially in India and China and elsewhere. And a lot of even just the U.S. power grid is shifting away from coal. And a lot of that's going to be picked up by natural gas, right? So I think that's another area in the energy space that's going to probably do pretty well. Personally, I am less bullish when it comes to domestic um, oil production. I think that market is very mature and probably not going to grow a lot more. And so I would say if, if you're looking for growth, if you're looking for where the uh, kind of where interesting work is going to be happening. I would say it's probably not going to be the oil upstream. We'll see. Um, but that's just my that's just my take at this moment. And so that's kind of how I would segment the market out. Gas looks good. Oil, not so great. Renewables looks really, really exciting, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I definitely see that taking place over the next few years you kind of mentioned sort of a segmentation of of the energy market you, i've noticed this sort of split and we've talked about this before offline about us versus eu company oil companies and kind of what they're doing and if you could just kind of explain that dichotomy to our listeners for for a second sure yeah so right now we're seeing companies like shell and bp which are obviously european based companies um kind of take on, at Total as well, take on a strategy of pouring a lot of money into the new green space, uh, into renewables, um, with the hopes of driving pretty clear revenue streams, um, like on that path. Uh, in the United States, there's been very little interest in big oil when it, in investing in renewables right now. Um, not sure if that's going to change. I think it probably is going to change. Um, but for now, there's a pretty clear dichotomy. Just to note, I mean, it's not clear who the winner is going to be. Shell, 
um, is paying outrageously high prices to lease um, offshore uh, offshore blocks um, offshore uh, blocks near the United Kingdom for wind energy. Right now, they're paying really, really high rates to to lease that stuff and and start getting started. Um, um, building out that kind of infrastructure. And so, I mean, Shell's certainly paying a premium for a lot of what they want to do. So again, like the required rate of return that just pushes it up, right? Because if you're, if you have more upfront cost, right, you're, you want that return to be higher. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's unclear. I think to, to get a little more granular, I would say, you know, Chevron is more focused around gas than Exxon. Exxon's really been left behind in a lot of ways. Um, very focused on oil production, very bullish on oil production up until the last year. And they've kind of had to um, kind of temper expectations a little bit. But that that's the dichotomy that's really going on right now. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. I, it's so interesting. The Exxon's kind of, quote, fall from grace. Like, like you mentioned, I mean, 2006, 2007, they were the largest company in the world. And now, you know, they, they've, got, they've gotten pretty wrecked as far as share price goes. So as you kind of mentioned these changes happening within these companies, I think, you know, the biggest uh, thing happening this year is we saw the Biden administration roll into DC and first day in office, we saw them cancel the Keystone pipeline and then later declare that um, a moratorium on drilling on federal lands. Do you think that kind of this is we are the right guy for the job as far as like, or I guess not that not in that sense, but like, are these policies, do you think that they're going to be good for the U.S. in the long term? Or, or what are your thoughts on that? Okay, first, I'll, I'll focus on Keystone and then I'll address the broader questions. Keystone is a project that affects, and just to keep in mind, right, like this pipeline was going to run from Canada down into the Gulf Coast, right, feeding Canadian crude into Gulf Coast refineries. Um, Gulf Coast refineries are very complex, which means that they can take very heavy um, sulfuric grades that come out of of Canada. Um, I would say that this affects Canada more than the United States long term, given the fact that U.S. Gulf producers have a lot of optionality to find those grades elsewhere. I would say it also hurts diplomatic relations between the United States and Canada. Um, And that's kind of a broader conversation for another time, but it's something to keep in mind. I'm not sure if that's good for U.S.-Canadian relations. I'm not sure how big of a deal it is. I'm not sure. But I know it is a geopolitical issue. Um, Now, more broadly, um, I think the Trump administration had taken a very unhealthy tact towards the oil industry. Heavy subsidization, heavy support. Um, wanted max amounts of production. The reality is, um, especially post-COVID and as we move out of COVID, the oil demand curve globally is going to flatten more quickly than initially expected. And that means that upstream companies are going to have to adjust to that reality, right? This this market is going to kind of have to start to shrink sooner or later, within the next decade, right? It's going to have to start to consolidate a bit. And I think a Biden administration allows that consolidation to kind of happen slowly over time. I think if you would have had a Trump administration in in the White House for another four years, you would have had max support for max output 
right? Even if it meant government subsidization, but then you eventually come to a point where the entire industry just falls apart because it cannot continue to operate without government subsidies that can't last forever. And so I think the Biden administration allows the U.S. oil industry like a slow uh, glide into consolidation over time. Okay, interesting. Yeah. What, what would um, what would you like to see the White House do as far as energy policy goes? I know that's a very broad yeah. question, but you can maybe just say, "Hey, I want this done," or what would you say to that? Yeah, I would say continue to have an emphasis on domestic gas production, natural gas production. Uh, continue to have an emphasis on renewables build out. Um, maybe don't focus, no need to focus so much, I think, on upstream oil production. That, that would be in terms of we're just talking very broadly about uh, you know where and what they should be focusing on. I think that focus on gas focus on renewables, and I'll throw in focus on nuclear as well. I, I think embracing nuclear makes a lot of sense. And, you know, just keep in mind, right, like over the next 20 years, we're going to move towards a world where um, the way we consume fossil fuels is going to be really focused on electrification, and we're going to kind of see a movement away from gasoline and diesel. Right. And so if we charge our cars, right, we're charging it off a grid. That grid's going to be powered by nuclear, natural gas, renewables. And we kind of will move away from such heavy demand on gasoline and diesel. Right. And so we kind of need to be thinking about ways to make sure that as we move towards that reality, um, and we kind of go back to the the discussion about the power grid, right? That that we're supporting technologies and support and supporting domestic production. Whether it's you know, resource harnessing our renewables or or harnessing gas or what have you, that we're building out that capacity to meet that that demand that is going to be coming, um, when it comes to to um, consumption of of electricity more broadly and to kind of shift away from diesel and gasoline. Yeah, very interesting. I know whenever whenever I see you on the ticket, I'm definitely voting for you. So, <laughs> um, so I kind of touching on that on that moving to an electric reality. I, I've seen varying figures on the amount of rare earth minerals that China has in their, I guess, in deposit or in their uh, resources. And I'm kind of curious how important will that U.S.-China relationship be going forward, considering that as we're, probably, we're going to be more reliant on their stock of rare earth uh, resources? Yeah, it definitely plays a role. I mean, the U.S.-Chinese relations are important for a whole bunch of reasons, um, including the rare earth is issue. Just keep in mind, though, that um, there will be developments elsewhere. Greenland is a good example. I believe in the next five to seven years, they're hoping to have a mine come online that will increase the production of rare earths by some 25%, I believe, right? Um, so I think that, yes, China does um, have a lot of the rights over over the mining of rare earths right now, but there, alternatives will come online elsewhere, um, especially if prices move higher and incentivize um, operations to go out and seek that stuff in areas where it might be a bit more expensive. But again, yes, certainly U.S.-Chinese relations will matter a lot. Um, uh, I don't think that this is going to be the issue that dominates. 
Um, but it's certainly important. Keep in mind, too, that technology uh, has come a long way and will continue to come a long way in um, terms of being able to uh, um, reclaim uh, rare earths that are no longer being utilized. So stuff that's already utilized rare earths that's sitting in a landfill or whatever, we will get better at reclaiming those rare earths so that they can be used again as well. And that's only going to, going to improve in the future too. Very interesting. Very interesting. I think you've kind of already answered this, but I kind of just want to have it a little bit stated a little bit more plainly. So over the next three to five years, what gets you, what are you most excited or most bullish about in the energy space? And then follow up there is what are you most bearish about? Whether that's a specific sub, like subsector, like upstream, midstream, downstream, or a certain aspect of renewables, if you could just kind of touch on that a little bit. Yeah, good question. Um, there are a lot of things I'm excited about. Uh, I would say uh, solar photovoltaic, solar PV, very interesting. Um, I think especially just given the fact that um, solar PV that that that's uh, you know where you put the panels out and it absorbs sunlight and uh, converts it to power. Uh, I think it's really interesting because. There are a lot of roofs that are available and it's very near the source of consumption, right? And so I think solar PV, I think has a really positive future and is a really interesting, uh, is going to be a really interesting technology to watch um, and even maybe find investment opportunities. I think um, it's, again, it's still a really small part of the total spending picture, uh, but that that's one area I would focus on. Two, again, as I kind of mentioned, I think the trade for LNG is going to be really strong for probably the next 20 years. Um, and the United States is going to play a central part in that. Um, we have a lot of natural gas here and a lot of developing economies, uh, but even developed economies who want to move away from coal power generation are, are really looking to shift a lot of their grid or, or a large portion of their grid to, to natural gas. And I think that's another part of the market that's going to be quite strong for quite a long time. So that that's two areas I would say I'm positive on. Again, negative kind of goes back to what I said earlier. I think upstream oil production is going to increasingly struggle. Um, yes, prices are good right now, um, but it, you know, it's been really hard for U.S. producers, U.S. oil producers to, to manage positive returns, um, just given the fact that uh, uh, these wells decline so quickly and, and to keep up your production rates, you have to continue to find new wells and it costs a lot of money. Um, and I just I don't see the long term viability um, personally. I could be wrong. I mean, we could see prices at over 100 for the next uh, five years. Probably not, right? Like very unlikely tail end event. Um, but again, I, I'm less bullish on on that. And then also, you know, pretty obvious, but like the coal industry in the United States, and I think thermal coal production more broadly, whether that's in um, Colombia or Australia or Indonesia, are are markets that are are like gonna slowly die over time 
as as economies really look to shift away from coal power generation. So um, that that's another area I am not that interested in, and I'm pretty bearish on. But again, that that's not very surprising. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. It's very interesting. Just really curious what you what you thought along those lines. Um, just one one more question. Um, so I know that. So you mentioned that y'all are you know y'all are out of the office now. Y'all aren't going back to the office. I'm kind of wondering your thoughts as far as just like daily patterns and I guess consumption habits of U.S. consumers are going to change post COVID as far as people just not commuting as much that sort of thing. Business travel. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I I think for. 30% of the United States who who have kind of normal office white collar jobs many of us will not go back to at the office that we knew um, it one it doesn't make financial sense for the company or for the worker um, there's a lot of lost productivity that comes with that uh, I I think that um, workers around the world not only in the United States who, who work at a desk all day, um, are really settling into the reality that work from home is 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 going to be uh, just part of life. Um, I think that when it comes to travel habits, um, you know, you can very easily look at jet demand right now, which is um, you know at its lowest it's been in a long time for this time of year. Um, and the fact, the fact of the matter is that people are not flying, right? It will take a long time, you know, two or three years at least for the aviation industry to get back to the level it was at pre COVID. And, and generally I think that, um, it could take longer, um, because business travel as we knew it, I think is permanently going to be changed. Yes. People will still travel for business but it's going to be far less, right? So just to give an example for myself, I was I was traveling regularly every other month to every three months. And I will probably never do that again uh, with the current company I work for. It will probably be once a year at most um, because it's expensive. And a lot of what I could do can be done over a video chat in 20 minutes, you know, instead of me flying to say New York and spending three days there and it costs my company three or 4,000, right. To fly and to get hotels and everything. And that's, that's no small amount of money. Right. And so I think a lot of companies are realizing this. Um, and so I think, uh, the aviation industry is probably going to have to shrink. Um, and I think that, you know, of course we'll continue to travel on airplanes, but, um, I also, you know, think that the environmental piece um, is is going to become a bigger deal, right? Like it's very in, environmentally unfriendly to to take airplanes places, right? And so I think it's very possible that through government intervention, whether it's you know taxing carbon or what what have you, it will become more expensive to fly, um, even beyond the next two or three years, when we see a return of kind of normal demand levels. Um, maybe, but again, so I, th- I think the environmental piece of this will, will, will also impact kind of how much people are business traveling, right? Like, you know, if, if Apple or, or Amazon or, um, Google kind of, kind of starts to feel 
a need to cut back business travel because of environmental reasons, they'll do it, right? And these companies are, are these large companies and, and small companies as well, really are what is driving um, the movement of people on airplanes, especially. So uh, I, I think that that market's in for a big change and a slow, slow recovery in general. Yeah, no, that, that'll be very interesting. It's just so interesting as a college student, just how much of my patterns have changed and amplifying that all over the world, especially the U.S. That was all the uh, questions I had for Reed and, and pertains to energy, but I did have one question. Um, I'm curious in a post-COVID world, I guess when, I guess things quote, return to normal, whatever that might be, what is something you're very excited to go do? Oh my God. I just want to like be able to, to like travel outside the United States. Oh my gosh. Like, trip to Belize would be great or a trip to like maybe Southern Europe would be nice just to like get a change of pace, you know? Hey, I mean, I'm guessing most of the people I'm probably talking to on here are, are not married, right? Like we can go travel and have some fun, right? But it just stinks because we can't right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I look forward to something along those lines as well. Um, well, thank yeah. you so much, Reed Ianson. I'll put all of your information in the show notes for my listeners to go check out. Um, just really thank you for, for hopping on today. Anytime, Jackson. Anytime, man. Awesome.